If you don't know me, I'm Paul. And actually, if you do know me, still Paul. Uh, good, good afternoon. It's um, a pleasure to be here. Bit different to be on this side of the pulpit. I um, would like to welcome you to pray with me before I start. Heavenly Father, I ask that you use my sermon today, my work reading over the passage, my prayers, and my time asking for your guidance to help us. Help us rest in the grace given to us through Jesus. It's all too easy to get caught up in an unhealthy cycle of guilt or pride as we compare ourselves to others. Lord, guide our hearts to understand our desperate need for grace and then fill us with awe as we realise that we are loved so deeply that we have received it through Jesus. Amen. The passage uh, Faisal read to us tonight started with a preacher's favourite word, or at least one of. Therefore, and I have it here in big bold letters so that I remember, it is a great and helpful word, particularly in the epistles, the letters in the New Testament, that says, look back, look at what I just said. And so I will give a brief summary of uh, what Peter said in the first 12 verses. He introduces himself. He establishes why he has authority and you should listen to him. And then in verses 3 to 12, which if you happen to catch the last sermon I preached here, I talked about those uh, verses, he discusses the imperishable, undefiled and unfading inheritance that Christians will inherit, that is waiting for us. It is this beautiful picture this picture of our inheritance that precedes the word therefore in verse 13. Put simply, in light of that inheritance secured for you, promised to you, and guarded for you, you should, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on that grace, that inheritance, that when Jesus comes back, and is revealed at his second coming, you will get to experience in full. I uh, have preached this sermon before, not exactly as you'll hear it today, but when I first encountered this passage, I struggled a lot thinking about how best to approach a passage that gives instructions. I am much more comfortable saying, God came and died in our place and saved us. That is wonderful and exciting and takes the burden off us. But here in the second half of chapter one, we are called to respond. We are called to act in light of this information. And it scares me. <laughs> there is part of me uncomfortable telling people how they ought to live, how they should respond. But God and Peter do not have the same issues that I do. Thankful. <laughs> Uh, thankfully. So, uh, I will try and summarise what I think the first set of instructions are and uh, work through it with you all. God wants us to live holy lives, lives that are set apart. Uh, from verses 14 through to 16, it all seems quite simple. You are, and I am, called to be like obedient children, 
Do not go back to the sinful habits that you had before you became Christians. And lastly, most simple of all, really, be holy as God is holy. Wait, (laughs) what was that last one? Be holy like God is holy. This is not the only time these words are in the Bible. And each time I am floored by the instruction. Uh, In an important sense, it is impossible. Each of us here will and do sin. But the call, the instruction, the desire is to be holy as God is holy. And now we arrive at why I've titled this sermon Worthy Waiting. We get these instructions for while we are waiting for the inheritance. These instructions to be holy, to be obedient children, to love one another. But it is how we fill our time while we wait. And we need to wait in a worthy fashion. We can reflect what we know we have coming, that perfect inheritance. We can wait in a way that shows the world that we have something more, something better than anything here and now. Last year, for for about three months, in my cosy little two-bedroom unit in Claremont, and if you ever see the word cosy when you're looking at real estate uh, places and websites, they mean small. (laughs) In my cosy two-bedroom unit in Claremont, there were four occupants. My wife, a mother, a six-year-old boy, and me. It may not surprise you to learn that of the four of us, the six-year-old boy had the hardest time waiting. What may surprise you is that I was a close second. Although, if you know me and you and Bethany, maybe you're not surprised that I was next. (laughs) I am not good at waiting. I like immediate gratification. If you've ever seen the marshmallow test with the children, where they're given one and said, if you can wait five minutes without eating it, you can have a second, I would still fail that now, (laughs) and I am 30. (laughs) I struggle. I want to do and act and respond as things happen. And I was thinking, as I had this uh, different experience, that compared to the about 10 years I've been involved in kids' ministry, living with a kid was different. Not better or worse, Uh, Better, but just different. So many parts of kids' ministry have the joy, the luxury, the freedom of knowing it will end. You're not permanently on. You're not permanently responsible. It is important that you are switched on for the two hours, three hours, the day if you're doing something on a camp. But that is different to being a parent or a caregiver full-time. And I uh, soon learnt that there is a lot of waiting involved. Waiting to get ready to leave. Waiting to leave. Waiting to hear the end of the thousandth story. (laughs) And then, something I didn't know I would have to wait for, and something that struck my heart much more deeply than the desire to be on time, was waiting for me to be trusted. I wanted the lessons I gave and the boundaries I set to kick in. 
I wanted Ion to know that I loved him and I could be trusted to have his best interest at heart. And I felt, sinful and flawed though I may be, that I had demonstrated enough love, enough trustworthiness, that when I asked for patience, I would get it. And I think God, uh, through Peter here in First Peter chapter 1, is saying the same thing. He has demonstrated his love for us. He sent his only son to die in our place. He has proven his trustworthiness. There are generations of prophets all proclaiming God will bridge the gap between humanity and himself. And now, God asks us to trust him while we wait. And while we trust him, we demonstrate that by obeying, by responding, <laughs> by being fully sober-minded and setting our hope on the grace that is to come. Peter uh, was laying this out for the new Christians throughout what is now Turkey, Asia Minor, that because of the gospel, that Jesus came, lived perfectly, died in our place, rose again, and will one day come back in glory, having secured for us the imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance, that we, you and I, and the Christians that received the letter, can trust God during the sufferings of here and now. I know that in the moment, suffering can overcome feelings and thoughts. It's hard to be logical and coherent. It's hard to look at what can seem to be at times an abstract promise. But I, I promise, both from personal experience and theological conviction, that as you turn back to the Lord, as you think about who Jesus was, what he has done, and what he will do, there is comfort there. And if you find it hard to get there on your own, church and growth group is a great place to be. In the family of believers, we can build each other up to find the comfort through the sufferings that we will inevitably face. Verse 14 sounds to me a little bit like Peter is preemptively answering a question. I can imagine someone saying, I believe, I am waiting, I have readied my mind, uh, I'm soberly thinking about all the truths that you've presented, and I wait hopefully. Now what? Peter's first and clearest suggestion is be obedient. Imitate Christ to the best of your ability. Much to the annoyance of my immediate family while I was growing up, and now much to the annoyance to my wife, I love arguing. <laughs> I love proving a point. I love feeling clever. I love trying to demonstrate that I am clever and failing. <laughs> and so it was with great satisfaction that I saw here Peter lay out his arguments, if A, then B, if B, then C. And of course, being impatient as I am, after hearing these kinds of things, I like to think, well, if A, then B, then C, we can just skip straight to C. But let me walk you through it. First, if you are no longer ignorant, 
you have new knowledge. Second, if this new knowledge condemns your old behaviour as sinful, if becoming a Christian has convicted you of things you used to do or things you still do, this is the new knowledge. Don't keep doing it. Third, the new knowledge you have is tied to who Jesus was and what he did as Messiah. He was the promised one, the holy one, God himself. God the Father commanded Israel, be holy because I am holy. And this is what we are called to do as well. If you have new knowledge of who Jesus is and that has convicted you of your sin, then it is a right and natural response that you will want to live without that sin. It won't be easy, it won't be a snap of the fingers, but knowing it is a sin is an important first step. To be obedient, you need to know what the instructions are. Peter, throughout all of 1 Peter, not just here in chapter 1, has a nice uh, pattern of speaking. First, he presents a glorious truth, an element of the gospel or an element of being part of the Christian family. And then he gives an instruction or a response that he thinks would be good and right and often natural. And so, always, 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 our behaviour changes and our desire for holiness is tied to our saving. We do not earn it. We cannot lose it by misbehaving or failing or falling back into sin. But as Christians, having been saved, we should want to change our behaviour. We should want to glorify God. Peter has laid out what we have to wait for, that imperishable, undefiled and unfading inheritance. Next, he acknowledges that we will suffer. And uh, I think the direct quote is, but for a little while. We will suffer. And uh, the New Testament is very clear that it knows and it is to be expected as a Christian. And then, while we wait, while we wait for this inheritance, God wants us to live as ambassadors for him, living in such a way that people want to know why we hope, why we persevere through suffering, why we are even willing to be persecuted. And I think that is a call that I don't need to know your specific sins or the difficulties you have, that I can encourage you all to think on, to meditate on, to pray about. How can I live in such a way that the people who know me will want to know where my hope is, how I manage to get through, why I live the way that I live. I want to be careful exploring the verses uh, from 17 to 21. There are two common uh, interpretations about the way in which uh, God is an impartial judge. One is... Uh, I think an easier way to approach it and one that I would have been more comfortable if I thought that was the best interpretation, it is that God is a good and righteous judge and will judge people 
uh, justly at the end of time, and that the only way we can be saved from a righteous judge is through a perfect uh, sacrifice, a perfect life in our place. And all of that is true, and lots of people do think this is what Peter is talking about, but I think there is some context to suggest that Peter is saying, as Christians, after you have been saved, so he's not talking about earning your salvation or possibly losing it, he is saying that as you are Christians now, what you do matters. How you fill your time as Christians while you wait matters. And God will judge that impartially. And uh, this is the part that made me most uncomfortable. I know that lots of people here of Christians, by Christians and at uh, church services all over the world, that they are condemned and awful and sinful. And I was afraid to buy into that, to contribute at all. So I want to be very clear. This is not about your salvation. It is after you are saved, you can live in a way, you are freed from the slavery of sin to live in a way that glorifies God. And God wants you to. God cares about what you do as a Christian, the ways in which you work to build up his church. And so we are called to live a life of reverence. We are living amongst perishable things, things that will not be uh, in heaven or will not be of uh, any merit in heaven. And knowing this, equipped with the knowledge that you have a perfect inheritance waiting and a God who cares about what you do now, it is a, a way to reprioritize, a way to manage how you approach the days remaining before Jesus' second coming or your death. And I want to call you all to think about that. Chew on the ways that it is tempting to rest on your laurels as a Christian, to think, once I am saved, I can breathe a sigh of relief and not think about what I do next. That is an understandable temptation and a wonderful joy. You are saved and you can't lose it once God has done that work. But you have time left here on earth and there are people who are not saved. And how will they hear if you don't speak? So think about the others who aren't uh, given the opportunity, who don't know Jesus yet. I want to encourage you that because of your inheritance, you can confidently and boldly proclaim the word. And then lastly, moving into the final section of the verses we've read today, um, from 22 to 25, we are called to love one another. And again, it is tied to the way we understand the truth, the way we obey. It is as Christians who know what Jesus did for them that Peter is saying to the Christians 2,000 years ago and to the Christians here and now that you should love one another. We are a community who has a truth that will last much longer than anything here and now, much longer than the grass that withers and dies, like the flowers who look great and then also die. We have the word of the Lord that endures forever. I hope uh, I haven't 
burden anyone with guilt or fear about how they are living. I hope you've heard the constant refrain of grace first. If not, feel free to come up and talk to me after the service and hopefully I'll be able to point back to what Jesus has done and how that is first and foremost. Uh, I would like to close in prayer and then we'll have some more music. Heavenly Father, as believers, we have a beautiful freedom. We're no longer chained to an innate, inarguable desire to sin. We have a new heart, a new understanding of what life can be. I pray that that new understanding comes with new behaviours, new choices. I pray that you guide us to live in a way that glorifies you. Amen.